All right, friends, what a great time it's been so far in worship. And in a moment, we're going to go to God's Word, specifically the book of Nehemiah. It's found in the Old Testament, also known as the Hebrew Scriptures. And this is week three in a sermon series on a rest of work, leadership lessons from the book of Nehemiah. Now, if you've missed any of the first two weeks, of course, you can go to our YouTube channel. You can search for that by going to YouTube and looking for Bel Air Church, and you can get caught up in the sermon series. But also to know that each of these sermons stand alone. You can jump in at any time and not feel like you've missed out on anything that you would need to know to understand today. And so as we get into this passage, a reminder that every single one of us is a leader if we are in any sort of relationship with anybody else. I love how Ken Blanchard says that if you, in your activity in life, affect somebody else's thoughts or actions, then you are a leader. It's true that whenever we enter into a relationship with maybe a roommate, a family member, maybe we post something on social media, we interact with somebody in line at the grocery store, maybe it's somebody we work with, maybe it's a neighbor. If what we do somehow, even if it's our, our body language or what we say or don't say or what we do, if it affects somebody else, in a sense, we are influencing them we are a leader. And this isn't just about being leaders. And this is more than that. It's more than just being good leaders. It's more than being great leaders. It's actually, what does it mean for us to be godly leaders? And so in this week three, we're going to talk about the posture of a leader. I'm not talking about the physical posture, but the posture of the heart and mind and what that looks like for us in our 21st century context. Okay, let me read Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and through this passage of Scripture, we're going to find six things today, six principles that we can put into practice. Let me read for us. I'm reading out of the New Revised Standard Version, and this is God's Word. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served to him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, may the king live forever. But why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies in waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors, so that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen also was sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him a date. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governor of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me all that I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me. 
When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. All right, six principles. Many of you were taking notes. And the first one is this. Godly leaders live their emotions, but aren't led by them. Now, throughout cultures and historical time periods, emotions, which are something that every human experiences, are perceived differently. And different worldviews perceive emotions. You know, in some ways, there is this pendulum swing as I look out on culture, uh, look out on cultures even around the globe, but also cultures throughout human history. And the, the two spectrums of the uh, emotional pendulum are one, all the way over here, we can just bury our emotions. No matter what we feel, we just dig a trench and we stuff them down there and we cover it up and we, we go out in public with our smile on our face. No one ever knows what's going on deep down inside. The other end of the spectrum is not that we bury our emotions, but rather we are buried by our emotions, like an avalanche that has covered us up, unable to allow us to move, to, to get up and to do things, to be in relationship with others, even to go to work. Some people are just so overwhelmed by the emotions in their life that it's literally like they are in a grave. And people can't see the real them. I wonder where you are on the spectrum right now. As you go out into your life, as you interact with other people, as you experience the highs and lows, the, the ups and downs, all the full spectrum of life, do you tend to bury your emotions or are you buried by your emotions? You know, you look back a couple decades ago and it seemed like, uh, especially in our American culture, uh, we lifted up leaders that were more towards this end of the spectrum, those that, that buried their emotions, that were calm, they were cool, they were collected. You know, the John Wayne type. They had a steely resolve. You had uh, no sense of any tumult or turmoil under the surface. No matter what was going on, they were always coming across confident and, and, and bold. And yet, over the last number of decades, it seems like we've kind of broadly as a culture, and I'm speaking in broad, broad stereotypes here, broadly as a culture, it seems like we've shifted a bit where there's this value of, of people being vulnerable, of leaders being authentic, of not burying their emotions, but, but allowing them to come to the surface. But what I've also seen is that some, not just people, but some leaders in doing that actually get buried by their emotions and they don't show up. They have to quit. They have to take some time. And in some instances, that's really healthy. But if we swing too far to either end of the pendulum, I believe that we miss out on God's heart for us on how we interact with our emotions. Again, godly leaders live their emotions, but aren't led by them. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes 
that famous section of Ecclesiastes written by King Solomon that was turned into a song by the birds, you know, turn, turn, turn. Uh, there is a season for everything. And this one passage in that little verse of Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. It's an acknowledgement that throughout the human experience, we experience a full range of emotions and that's human. In fact, as it says in the book of Romans 12, 15, that we're called to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. We're not only supposed to experience emotion, but we're supposed to acknowledge the emotional state of other people in our life. And we're called to meet people where they are. In fact, the shortest passage in scripture, two words, Jesus wept, reminds us that the very son of God had emotions. He was weeping at the grave of his friend Lazarus. In fact, Proverbs 25, 28, I've mentioned this in the two weeks prior, a person without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Well, on one hand, there's an acknowledgement that we have emotion and God wants us to live our emotions, not to bury it, but also not to be buried by it. If we lack self-control, and allow our emotions to lead us. Ultimately, they direct us rather than God directing us and they bury us. And it says then we're like a city without walls. One of the things I tell my son, my oldest son, Judah, my nine-year-old, whenever he has emotions, I, I meet him in the midst of whatever he's going through and I sit next to him and I talk to him, I come alongside him and I, I enter into his emotional state. I ask him, some of the reasons why he's feeling the way he does, to tell him that it's okay to, to feel those different emotions. And often at the end of that conversation, I'll say, you know, there's this great opportunity. Rather than having your emotions lead you, for you to lead your emotions. And I always read for him this passage from Psalm 42:11. In fact, I'd love for you Maybe make a note before your head hits the pillow tonight to, to read all of Psalm 42. It's this amazing psalm that King David writes. It begins with, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. And on two different points in that uh, 42nd psalm, King David asks the same question. Why are you so downcast Oh, my soul. And I love that he asks his soul, he asks his very being why it's in its emotional state. In speaking to his emotions, he's leading his emotions rather than his emotions speaking to him, leading him. And he goes on, this is Psalm 42, 11. Why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? And why are you so disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. What does it look like for Nehemiah? Well, we read it already. It says that he goes into the king's presence. He had never been sad in the king's presence. And he's living his emotions. He's not burying it, but he's not buried by it. He still shows up to work. He still brings the wine as the cupbearer to the king. Again, he's not buried, he's not buried by it. And he goes to the king and the king notices his countenance. 
And he speaks to, well, what's going on? You're not sick. There must be something wrong with your heart. You see, godly leaders live emotions, but they aren't led by them. And that posture will absolutely revolutionize how you go into your work. But it requires you to spend time with God, to actually know what is going on in your heart and in your mind. Because the king, he, he asked Nehemiah, what's going on? And Nehemiah has an answer. You see, when you bury your emotions, you don't have an answer. When somebody asks you, what's, what's going on? But also when you're buried by your emotions and somebody asks you what's going on, you don't, you don't really give a clear, accurate answer because you can magnify it. You can, you can think of it being so much more grand or, or, or expansive or universal than it actually is. But it goes on. That's the first of six. The second is this. Godly leaders rely on God's guidance. I want to show you something. I love this. After that question is asked of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah responds and says why he's sad. In verse 4, it says, The king said to me, What do you request? Now, in that moment, Nehemiah could have responded a lot of ways. He could have, in that moment, immediately answered, but he doesn't answer immediately. It says right here in verse 4, before he answers, it says this, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, I want you to imagine this. He's in a conversation with his boss, not just any old boss, the king of Persia. And he asks him a question. And right here in the narrative, it says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't want you to picture that he left the meeting and went into his prayer room. I don't want you to imagine that he leaves and goes somewhere else to get quiet with the Lord and then came back. No, he is face to face with the king of Persia. And in that split second moment, he prays to the God of heaven. What a great opportunity for us to see that prayer isn't something that only exists in our private life. It doesn't even need to be out loud. It doesn't need to be before a meal alone. It doesn't need to be in front of a group of people. We don't have to hold hands alone to think that this is what prayer equals to. Whenever we turn our heart and our mind to God, whenever we open up our spirit to God's spirit, whenever we pause before we work, whenever we rest in God's truth before we set out into action, we become a godly leader that is always relying on God's guidance. Now, if you're, if you're uncomfortable praying in private, you'll never have a comfort of praying in public. And that's why it requires us, when we're alone, before our work, to spend time with the Lord. Remember early in this sermon series, I said that when Nehemiah heard the news about what had happened to the people of Israel and what had happened to Jerusalem, the place of God's residence, he was so overwhelmed with grief that he sat down and he wept and he fasted and he prayed. In the beginning of the section, it says, in the month of Nisan, 
This is four months after he first gets the news. For four months, he's been praying. For four months, he's been connecting with God. For four months, he's been seeking God's guidance. And so it is natural out of the overflow of what he's been doing in his rest, connecting with God. Now he's in his work and it's natural for him to seek God's guidance. Imagine what it would be like in a board meeting, on set, in the middle of an interview, in the midst of being asked to give an answer in a classroom. Imagine if you could have such a natural, comfortable relationship with God that you were constantly asking for, that you're constantly seeking God's guidance in every moment, in every situation of your life. This is a very, very different way of living than praying once a day, than praying just when you're at church, This is about a constant connection with God. And so what does he do? Before he does anything, he prays the Lord of heaven and earth. I imagine it was a very short prayer. Again, God doesn't delight in the length of our prayers. He just delights when our heart and our mind turns to him. And instantly he seeks God's guidance and he answers. He says to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. This wasn't his plan. This was God's plan. And God had a plan to rebuild the wall. God had a plan to accomplish the work. And here we have Nehemiah, who wasn't so much capable as he was simply available. And when you're constantly in contact with God in your private life and in your public life, watch what happens as you get to join God in God's work. Now, again, in a sermon series back in the fall, when we preached through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, I talked about what it might look like for us to engage in work that is already completed. You see, from God's eternal view, all the work that God wants to do, from eternal view, God's done it. And so the blessing that we get is when we get to join God in that work that, again, from God's point of view, not only will get finished, but is finished in the fullness of time. And so it's as good as done when he has sought God's guidance, when he boldly shares what he believes God is calling him to do, even though there's a possibility the king might say no. There's a sense of confidence. There's a sense of humility that when you join God's plan, that it's all gonna work out, even if it's a different way and different timing. So what does it mean to rely on God's guidance when we can't just, you know, set a meeting with God like we would set a meeting with a mentor to lay out all of our problems and and literally face-to-face seek their guidance? I mean, what does that mean, that godly leaders follow God's guidance? Here's some passages that are life-changing for me, and I pray that they are for you. Of course, the famous one, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and God will make straight your paths. Yeah, but what does that mean? Well, first, God promises to guide you. So here we are, wanting God's guidance, perhaps feeling like we are speaking to an empty void, but it's so essential to understand that Scripture says that God has promised 
that God wants to guide us. Here's one of those, Psalm 32, verse 8. God's speaking, I will instruct you and I will teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So this is one of over 7,400 promises that God makes to us. In a reminder from last week in 1 Corinthians, it says that in Christ, all the promises of God are a yes. God is a promise keeper. So here we have God making a promise that God will not only have his eye on us, but he will lead us and guide us and teach us and instruct us. The question is, are we opening up our heart and our mind in all of our ways to allow God to do that? Yeah, but what does that mean practically? A couple things. Psalm 119 says this, that it's God's word, first and foremost, that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That's Psalm 119, 105. So one of the most practical ways in which we can seek God's guidance and rely on God's guidance is just immersing our life in God's word. And the more time we spend in scripture, the more we get to understand God's heart, God's values, God's commands for us, while also acknowledging that there's things from different historical time periods that can seem so foreign to us in our modern context and how important it is to, to read scripture in community, to seek resources like respected theological commentaries. But it's a great reminder that, that we can set a meeting with God. It, it might not feel face-to-face -face like we would with a mentor, but we can set a meeting with the maker of heaven and earth, the wisest one who ever lived, every time we open up God's word. And as we open up God's word, the written word, it's a reminder that this word is, it says about itself, it's alive and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It separates joint and marrow. And all of scripture is useful for correction, for teaching, for reproof, for training up in the ways of the Lord. So we don't have to just choose, you know, our favorite books of the Bible. We don't have to just choose, you know, Proverbs. From beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books of the Bible, including Nehemiah, are the means through which God wants to communicate to us on how to live and to love like Jesus. But we don't have to go this alone because Jesus also shares in John 16 that God gives us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And that Spirit will guide all of us into truth so that we can be guided by the Spirit of God to understand what God is saying through God's word. Now, here's a remarkable image. I want you to imagine this. This is God speaking to the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 30, verse 21. It says this, And when you, you turn to the right, you turn to the left, whenever you move and breathe, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard the audible voice of God. I've never heard, this is the way, and you shall walk in it. And yet, the more time I spend immersing my life in God's word, the more it becomes written on my heart. And the more it becomes written on my heart, the more I find in different circumstances in my day, those passages coming to mind. 
You see, whatever you rest your mind on, that's where your mind will go to in times of crisis and in times of need. Our world is filled with so much noise. And when we rest our mind on anything else other than the word of God, when times of crisis, when times of trouble come up, when times of decision come up that require us to, to you know, we, we, what do we do? We go to the things that we've been resting our mind upon. And God is saying, I want to speak to you. I want to lead you. I want to guide you. So come to my word. Allow my spirit to guide you. And as you do so, as it becomes written on your heart, you will find in moments, in split seconds, that you get this, best way I could describe it is this, this impression, this sense, a verse comes to mind. And when a verse comes to mind, I believe it's the Spirit of God speaking to you in that moment, giving you direction. These are phenomenal opportunities in which we can grow in relying on God's guidance. But let's go on. This is point number three. Godly leaders are willing to leave the familiar to follow God's leading. You know, you see this all throughout Scripture. In fact, there's characters from beginning to end. You see it with, with Noah uh, and Abraham. So many throughout the Old Testament. Uh, I mean, in the fullness of time, you see it in Jesus who left the familiarity of heaven to come to earth to, to live among us, to lay down his life for us. Godly leaders leave the familiar to step out in faith as they follow God. Nehemiah has it made. He is directly working for the most powerful person in Persia. He's the cupbearer to the king. He likely has tremendous comfort in his life, uh, tremendous security in his life, tremendous dependability in uh, what he has. Uh, he's probably paid very well. He probably lives in nice accommodations in many ways. He's at the place that a lot of people are aiming to get at at some point in their life, and he's there. And yet he knows that even in the most opulent, even in the most comfortable, even in the most familiar, even in the most stable situation, it's nothing compared to following God's leading. You know, there's a huge difference between belief and faith. Scripture says even the demons, they, they believe in God. And so belief, you know, mental assent, is kind of like a house. You can live in that house forever enclosed in your belief. But faith, on the other hand, gets you up off the couch and out the door to follow wherever God leads. I love the illustration. Some of you have heard this before. In the 1800s, there was this great tightrope walker who would do these amazing feats. And back then, you know, pre-television, uh, pre-all the entertainment that we have, I mean, this was like the greatest show in town. And, and hundreds and even thousands of people would come out and watch this tightrope walker, the great Blondine. And he would do crazy things. And one day he, he set up for actually months this tightrope that spanned across Niagara Falls. People would come out and they'd see him do all these things. He'd walk across, he'd go blindfolded, he'd juggle. He would take even a wheelbarrow, all the weight, and he would go across with the wheelbarrow and come back. And there was this famous day, all the newspaper reporters were out. It was towards the end of his tour there after many months. And he says to the great cloud, how many of you 
think that I can put a person inside this wheelbarrow and make it across and make it back with them safe. How many of you believe that I can do it? All the hands shoot up. People are screaming, you can do it, you can do it. He says, all right. Who's the first volunteer? Silence. People believe, but nobody had faith. You see, belief says from the safety of the background, I believe you can do it. Faith requires a lot of risk to step out of your familiar. They were unwilling to put their life in the hands of the great Blondine. And he's human. They were calculating this risk. The truth is when God says, do you have faith to follow me? There's no safer place than we can be in the hands of God. There's no vibrant, joy-filled, peace-filled, secure place that we can be in the center of God's will. And so godly leaders are willing to leave the familiar to follow God's lead. And we see it here. Nehemiah says, will you allow me to go? Will you allow me to leave my job? Because this is what God is guiding me to do, to go to the place of my ancestors and to rebuild the wall. The fourth posture of a leader is this. Godly leaders know their context and adjust accordingly. It is an ever-changing context that we find ourselves in as humans and especially as leaders. And the world that you grew up in is very different than the world that exists today. And if you travel to different places around the globe, even travel to different states in uh, America, you travel to different cities, it's, it's a different context. You might even find that when you talk to different groups of people in your life, whom you're friends with, all of them, it's a very different context. And so it's a great reminder that the gospel never changes, but the context in which the gospel longs to be experienced, that context is constantly changing. And so what does Nehemiah do? He understands his context and he plans accordingly. Whether he agrees with it or not, he still lives in a foreign kingdom where he doesn't have authority other than the authority given to him by the king of Persia. As an uh, exile living in Babylon, he knows that he can't go anywhere just on his own. And so what does he do? He asked the king, if it pleases the king, this is verse seven, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me a passage until I arrive in Judah. He knows his context. He knows that if he goes alone without that authority, bad things will happen to him. Whether he agrees with it or not, he knows how to plan so that he can get through the situation to accomplish God's will. You see, when we get so hung up on our circumstances, trying to change our circumstances, complaining about our circumstances, complaining about laws, complaining about the government, complaining about certain things, we can miss out on the opportunities to simply adjust accordingly to follow God through it. You know, you look at the Apostle Paul, the way that he shares the gospel in Rome is so different than how he shares the gospel in Philippi, is so different than how he shares the gospel in Athens. 
That third one is the only time where he goes in and he understands that the group of people there are a group of philosophers and they're debating all these different belief systems, uh, Greek mythology, different worldviews. And rather than him coming in hot like he comes into Philippi and into Rome, he observes things. He listens to the philosopher's reasoning. He looks at all the, the idols around the city. He realizes that this context is different than that context. And it's not about changing the context. It's about adjusting accordingly to the context so that the gospel can be shared. And you know what he does? He says, men of Athens, I see how very religious you are. I see all of your worship here. I'm here to tell you about the unknown God whom you have an idol with an inscription to the unknown God. I'm here to tell you about him. And then the Apostle Paul quotes a poem. He doesn't quote from the Old Testament. He's not quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes a poem to help lead them to Christ. And if you understand the source of that poem and the context of that poem, you actually discover that that poem was a poem written to the god Zeus. Now you might say, well, Paul is... Quoting Greek mythology? Yes. He's quoting Greek mythology, something that that context understood to point them to the greater truth. The poem is this. In him we move and breathe and have our being. And he's saying, you wrote that poem about Zeus, but I'm telling you who that is really meant for, and it's the maker of heaven and earth, and he's revealed himself to us in the person, fully God, fully human, Jesus Christ. So godly leaders, they understand their context and they adjust accordingly. And so how we are called to follow Jesus is going to drastically change. And the best leaders are the ones who understand their context, who, who ask God for discernment on how best to lead in each and every context. The fifth is this, godly leaders recognize God's blessing every step of the way. The king of Persia, he, he grants him passage. He gives him the letters. He sends him on his way. And it says this in verse 8, And the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the gracious hand of my God was upon me. What a great reminder that when doors open up in our life, it's not because of us. It's not because of our skill. It's not because of our great planning. It's not because of our great uh, eloquence. Godly leaders acknowledge God's blessing every step of the way. We see this in Nehemiah's life. We see this in King David's life. We see this in Moses' life. We see this in Paul's life. For example, the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks to God in all circumstances. James, the brother of Jesus, said this in James 1.17, Every good and every perfect gift comes from our Father of lights. When you get that promotion, when the conflict is resolved, when you get the job, when you have an advancement in your career, when something just works, it's an opportunity to give thanks to God for that blessing. What an opportunity we have this week to be so mindful 
throughout the week to just give gratitude, to give thanks to God. And really, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which I read a moment ago, it's not just in the blessings, but it's in all circumstances that we give thanks to God. And the sixth and final is this. Godly leaders will face opposition. For Nehemiah, it says this. Verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah and the Ammonite official heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. You see, this wasn't his plan. This wasn't his idea. And if it's just our plans and our ideas and we face opposition, sometimes the opposition we face is for a good reason, because it's a bad plan. It's not going to succeed. And so just because we face opposition doesn't mean that we should be thinking, oh, I'm facing opposition. I must be going the right way. No, no, sometimes you're going the wrong way. And the opposition is the exact thing you need to get you right back on track. But when we follow God's guidance, we should never be surprised that we will face opposition. Even Jesus said to his disciples, do not be dismayed when you face troubles in this world. It's going to happen. But take heart, for I, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I love this passage as well. This is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as much as you were sharing in Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when Christ's glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Jesus, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear his name. A great reminder that... Uh, we can have opposition for different reasons. We can have suffering for different reasons. People can oppose us for different reasons. But when the reasons are, they are against what we are doing for God. Know that that's going to happen and know that that's okay. And know that the Spirit of God will sustain you. And ultimately that work from God's point of view is going to get completed Keep pressing on, not because you're bullheaded, not because you're uh, uh, stubborn, but because you're faithfully following God's leading in your life. All right, so these six things are things that we can, we can put into practice this week as we go into whatever work that might be. It could be raising up the next generation. It could be studying for school. It could be applying for a job. It could be cleaning our home, washing the dishes. These are opportunities to practice the presence of God. And out of resting in who God is and who God says we are, from that rest we can go as workers for God's glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have come and modeled to us what it looks like to be the greatest leader in humanity. And so we look to you in this moment to lead us, to guide us, even as scripture says, Jesus, you have given us the spirit, the Holy Spirit of truth that will lead us in all ways to your truth. So would you fill us up with your knowledge? Would you fill us up with your wisdom and your discernment so that we can grow, not just to be good leaders, not just to be great leaders, but godly leaders 
for the sake of your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray and we say together, amen.